Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey all, real quick, just wanted to remind you all that we have a spring giveaway going on right now. You could be entered to win an original painting by contemporary artist Tiana Bracey, a pair of studio headphones, some Art History Babe stickers, a Vincent Van Gogh Smoking Skull t-shirt, and a Richard Diebenkorn exhibition catalog. To be entered to win, you gotta show us some love on iTunes. Head over to iTunes, write us a review. Once the review goes live, screenshot it and email it to us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. We've already gotten some really nice ones. Thank you guys so much. We love y'all. Winner will be chosen April 15th. So you got a few more days to get in there and be entered to win our spring giveaway. Also, there's going to be another Spotify playlist released in tandem with this episode. So if you haven't already, make sure to check out our Spotify account. We've got a few playlists up right now. There should be another one coming pretty soon. Inspired by the subject of this episode, none other than Georgia O'Keeffe. Enjoy the episode. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Jen. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. And we're on day three of Halloween work weekend. Yeah. It's been a fun, spooky time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got spooked last night. We got so spooked. Oh, God. So, quick recap just like (sighs) fill you guys in. Friday night, we got super drunk and recorded about murder. (laughs) You should go back and listen to that because it was a trip. And then we woke up feeling dry, feeling hazy yesterday, but we powered through. Went to Denny's. We went to Denny's for breakfast. Started our day with Denny's. (laughs) It was so funny because, yeah, we were all like kind of hungover and it was Jen said something about wanting to go to Denny's and we just like laughed about it. For, yeah, like, it was like a time. joke. And then I was like, no, <laughs> let's actually do that. And I was like, yeah, let's actually do that. So we did. And it totally hit the spot. Then we came back. We recorded about maps with our friend Mariah, who is just lovely and was a joy to have on the show. Definitely be looking out for that episode. Mm-hmm. And then we went to a pumpkin patch, which was delightful, but it was also the middle of the day and we were all exhausted. So we just kind of like wandered like zombies around a pumpkin patch. We yeah. saw some goats. Mm-hmm. Little goats. They were very cute. And we bought some pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Came back, went and got Thai food. We reset a little bit, watched The Witch, which... Mm-hmm you all know is a favorite of ours. Right, but Natalie had not seen it. I had not. So that was special. That was special. Such a good movie. Such a good movie. Mm-hmm. And we watched The Witch, and then we drove out into the middle of fucking nowhere. 
God. <laughs> it was so scary. And Corey's car was making some weird noises and it, it just felt. It was like shaken. It was like, it was scared. My car was scared. We were feeding off of each other's like nervousness in that car. Yeah. And then we just got extremely afraid. Yeah. We pulled over and we're like, should we do this? So we bought tickets to this haunted trail tour, which I knew it was like out in the middle of nowhere, but I thought it was in a town out in the middle of nowhere. And it wasn't. It was actually out in the middle of nowhere. Right. No lights, winding roads. Yeah. And in this is, I mean, it's an area I've been out to before, but during the day, I've never never been out there at night and so it was just spooky as hell in general and Ginny was navigating and it just seemed like it got farther and farther away you know (laughs) and this thought just creeped into my head where I thought what if this is not a real place me too like what if we're being lured (laughs) to our serial killer untimely death i know <laughs> and this is all gonna be in a movie in 20 years like about the <laughs> fake haunted trail and <laughs> in california yeah i think we were like telepathically on the same because i was just driving my car i was like what if <laughs> what if none of this is real what if we get there and it's like one creepy dude and then we got there and it was one person in a mask like a a freddy Kruger. Kruger mask. Yeah. So as we were driving up, we saw this person, the Freddy Kruger mask, which was pretty terrifying. But then we rolled down our window and she was a very sweet woman. She was like, Hi. Thank God it was a woman. That's all I have to she say. was like directing us where to drive our cars. And then very quickly we saw all these other cars and there were children and there were lights and like. Yeah, the was... children really sealed the deal. <laughs> then I was like, okay, this is going to be fine. I saw a lot of twinkle lights, like a lot of Christmassy style lights. No, but I wasn't super into the tour in general. Yeah. So once you guys realized it was a real tour, you were fine i was still a little stressed (laughs) it's so true i went from so like yeah nat you were just scared all around i just don't like that shit i don't like being scared on purpose you know everyone's got their things and i just don't like that for sure and she stuck it out like i was pretty brave right i was at the front you did great you did great but yeah mine was much more of a roller coaster because i was fucking stoked i was so stoked to do this and then as we were driving out into nowhere and my anxious brain was going insane places as it tends to do, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And yeah, it's just one of those examples of how your brain can be the scariest place. And then we got there and it was very, very quickly realized that this is a thing. A lot of people are here and the proceeds go to help kids. And then we got there, too. And one of the guys that lives there is a goat farmer. So there were more goats. <laughs> Yeah, these were bigger goats, too. So so many goats yesterday. I know. That was great. You know, the thing about that is it totally makes sense to have had some kind of really anxious thought processes. It's not natural. No. Human beings are not meant to be outside in the pitch dark, (laughs) okay? In the woods. (laughs) That's danger, okay? Yeah, it's straight danger. (laughs) So It's just a sign that, you know, our fight or flight responses were working man yeah, they working. were like this is not safe and it wasn't um, <laughs> we made it but the tour we got scared for sure check out our youtube because i got some <laughs> solid footage of that it was scary but it was a safe controlled uh, fear fun <laughs> situation and we came out of it and everyone was troopers we did good and then we got back home yeah exhausted as hell super exhausted from a day of just working and halloween shenanigans Mm -hmm. 
But man, it's been a good weekend. Feeling good about... I feel positive. I feel positive Mm -hmm, too. Great way to spend Halloween 2018. We recorded a video earlier and now we are here and we're going to talk about Georgia O'Keeffe. That we are. All right. Let's do it. It is very exciting. I have a million different directions I want to go in this episode. And obviously, you can never cover everything. You can never do anything. So I'm like, I'm interested to see where this goes. I'm interested to see how we cover Georgia because there's just so much. There's so much. There's always so much. This is Georgia O'Keeffe, art history babe style. Yeah, exactly. So let's start with the basic, with the facts. Nat, what do you got? So Georgia... Tato O'Keefe was born on November 15th, 1887. 1887, damn. That was a long time ago. Right? I was just saying earlier that it always kind of surprises me when I look up her actual timeline because she seems a little more contemporary to us than she is in my mind for some reason. Yeah, she definitely does. And as Jen brought up when we were talking before, I think she lived a long time. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. And I can bookend that. She passed away March 6th, 1986. I was not born yet. Is anyone here? No, no. I'm 88. I'm 89. So yeah, yeah. Nope. we never lived in a world with a live Georgia O'Keeffe. So close though. So close. So close. So she was born in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, and she was the second of seven children. That's so many kids. That's like a normal amount for back then. Oh, 100%. Wisconsin, I feel like. I feel mm-hmm. like they had a lot of kids. There. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Is that a safe assumption? 100%. Cool. Yeah, the Midwest, I mean, this is way later. My dad was one of 10, and like oh, they yeah, were like yeah. a small family. <laughs> <laughs> they lived in a neighborhood where the biggest family was like 18 kids. <laughs> oh, my God. That was in Iowa. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was in Iowa in like the... <laughs> we're here in California. 50s. I'm like, seven kids? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. man. Anyway. So, luckily for Georgia, female education was stressed in the O'Keeffe family, so she began taking painting lessons at a really young age, but then was able to continue on to attend the Art Institute of Chicago, and she was there from 1905 to 1906, and then she went on to the Art Students League in New York from 1907 to 1908, so that's cool that her family was all about female education, you never know, this was pretty early on yeah definitely it's really early to you know be doing that exactly we're talking the first decade of the 20th century and then i wanted to mention this it's kind of a blip but i thought it was important she took a four-year break from 1908 to 1912 and just went to work in chicago on her whatever career i don't actually know what she was doing but it was not arts related well i mean what happened was that her family could no longer afford to finance her studies and her mom was sick (laughs) right her mom had tuberculosis the father went bankrupt and so she just couldn't study anymore and in those four years she was working as a commercial artist for a couple of years like two years and then just stopped painting altogether and was doing life stuff yeah apparently But I just feel like that's important to note because I know we have listeners who are artists and people who maybe were artists at one point and had to stop for different reasons. And four years can seem like such a long amount of time in your own head and in your Mm -hmm. own life. But in reality, it's not. Right. And if Georgia O'Keeffe could take four years off and come back and become Georgia O'Keeffe. Right. You know, don't make excuses if you feel like that's what your path is. Right. According to this Mental Floss article that I'm looking at, 
she actually quit painting a couple of times in her life. So three times. And then she still went back to it. See? So. You can always come back. Nothing's ever permanent, guys. It's fine. We're all just doing our best. <laughs> we are all just doing our best. So then in 1912, she was able to re-enroll in arts classes and was trained in the techniques of Arthur Wesley Dow. And her teacher, Alan Bement, 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 Alan <laughs> Bement, taught O'Keefe Dow's emphasis on composition and design. And this was really her gateway into a world other than realism. And she was into it and it just opened things up for her. And she was able to move in the direction of abstraction and into the style that we know. And I was looking up Arthur Wesley Dow and his work. You can see definitely some stylistic similarities. And it also kind of makes sense that this would be something she'd be looking at because his second edition of Composition, a series of exercises in art structure for the use of students and teachers so the second edition of this book came out in 1912 when she came back and started dipping into this. And I wanted to read this quick little excerpt from the book. He says, Composition expresses the idea upon which the method here presented is founded, the putting together of lines, masses, and colors to make harmony. Composition building up of harmony is the fundamental process in all of the fine arts. A natural method is of exercises in progressive order, first building up very simple harmonies. Such a method of study includes all kinds of drawing, design, and painting. It offers a means of training for the creative artist, the teacher, or one who studies art for the sake of culture. This is just a brief glimpse into the methodologies with which she starts painting herself and teaching in the following years. And she did a small series of charcoal drawings following this methodology of natural forms such as ferns, clouds, waves, and she used abstracted combinations of shapes and lines to complete these charcoals. And a friend handed a few of them off to Alfred Stieglitz in 1916 for him to look at. And Jen, I will let you take it away from here. Or should we take a quick break real quick? Yeah, let's just take a break. Let's take a quick break. We're going to take a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. We hope you enjoyed that commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> As we know, you always do. All right. Alfred Stieglitz. For those of you unfamiliar with the man, he was a photographer who helped usher in modernism in the United States. So he was a key player in the world of modern art and photography. And his gallery, known as Gallery 291, was a gallery that promoted the work of avant-garde artists from the United States and Europe, as well as photographers. So at this point in time, it's around 1915, fall of 1915. For a couple of years before this, she had been teaching art. And over the summers when she wasn't teaching, she was taking art classes at the teaching school 
Teachers College of Columbia University, among other schools. So she's getting back into painting. She's getting back into drawing. And she created a series of innovative charcoal abstractions that were based on her personal sensations. So the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum actually says that she was one of the first American artists to practice pure abstraction. So these drawings O'Keeffe mailed to her friend and former classmate, Anita Pollitzer, who then took them to Alfred Stieglitz at his 291 gallery in early 1916. Stieglitz, quote, found them to be the purest, finest, sincerest things that had entered 291 in a long while, and he wanted to show them. So he was very taken with her work, and he made plans to exhibit her work at 291 without bothering to ask for permission. He just did it. God damn it. <laughs> uh, so That you know, is ridiculous. <laughs> they had not met at this point. O'Keefe had gone to the 291 gallery and was aware of Alfred Stieglitz, but they had not formally met. So they met. When later on that year, O'Keefe heard that her drawings were in the gallery. So she met him after going to 291 and chastising him for showing her work without her permission. You go, girl. Obvi. Rightfully so. So when they first met, it was actually Paul Strand who O'Keefe was infatuated with, who was one of Stieglitz's friends and associates. And they would exchange several romantic letters. But when Stieglitz heard about their interest in one another, he told Strand that he too was infatuated with O'Keefe. And over a period of time, the infatuation between O'Keefe and Strand gradually diminished. And by the summer of 1917, O'Keefe and Stieglitz were writing each other, quote, their most private and complicated thoughts. So romantic. Mm -hmm. A quick aside, Stieglitz at this time was 52 and famous. So he was an internationally acclaimed photographer with an avant-garde gallery in Manhattan. O'Keefe, on the other hand, was 28 and unknown and kind of broke. So he promised to provide her with financial support and arranged for a residence and a place for her to paint in New York in 1918. And so they did develop a very close personal relationship. He promoted her work. On top of that, she came to know many early American modernists who were part of Stieglitz's circle of artists. So meeting Stieglitz really allowed for her to become taken seriously as an artist. She met a lot of important people. So now she's operating in this avant-garde modernist circle. She'd meet many famous artists, one of which was Frida Kahlo. There's a sort of myth in the art world that they might have had an affair. Who knows? But they were aware of each other. So these are all contemporaries working at the same time. So at this point, it's important to note that Stieglitz was married at the time that he and O'Keefe began their affair. And when his wife, Emmy, told him to stop seeing her or get out, he left immediately. <laughs> so he and O'Keefe began living together. Their relationship was very passionate. So due to some legal delays, it took about six years before he was actually divorced. In that time, Stieglitz and O'Keefe were living together, but she would go off from time to time to create art. And in those times that they were apart, Stieglitz would concentrate on his photography, promoting modern art. O'Keefe was concerned with developing her personal style and just being a painter. It's fair to say that they 
inspired one another. According to an NPR story, from 1915 until 1946, when Stieglitz died, they exchanged some 25,000 pieces of paper. (laughs) They would write letters to each other obsessively. Some of the letters would be up to 40 pages long. Sometimes they would write two or three a day. So when they weren't together, their correspondence was still very intense. So O'Keefe, in a lot of ways, this happens in the art world, she became Stieglitz's muse. And, you know, her own work was kind of, he promoted it fiercely, but it, it was not as famous during her lifetime like as it is to us today. Mm-hmm. Although Stieglitz, in the period of time between 1918 and 1925, when he was obsessively photographing O'Keefe, it was his most prolific period of his entire life. He produced more than 350 mounted prints of O'Keefe that were shown often. So his portraits of her portrayed a wide range of her character moods and beauty. He especially loved her hands and would take many close-up studies of parts of her body. However, art historians have interpreted these as being different than your average nudes because her personality is very crucial to the photographs and it really comes through. So you get the sense that he's recording her personality. Anyway. Which is just a complicated I. Right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm in no way like disagreeing with that because, yeah, who she was definitely comes through in those images. But it kind of just goes back to throughout art history, how we deal with the female nude and how we place different meanings on it and how much of it is just a desire to appreciate a nude figure and how much is it representing something else, you know? Yeah, and the portrait in general, too, because if we think this situation versus like Cindy Sherman's portraits, it's mm-hmm. so different because of who's getting to tell the story yeah. and who's capturing the essence of the personality. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because someone's essence looks different through the eyes of a romantic partner than it would from anyone else, you know? And especially through your own eyes. Yeah. Often the pictures people like of themselves can differ greatly from the ones that loved ones like of them. Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. Yeah. I wasn't able to find anything that specifically spoke of how O'Keefe felt about these images. So I don't know that. Yeah, she may have liked them. I do know that it wasn't all rosy. Stieglitz was a little bit of... A bastard in the sense that um so we already bastard we already know that he cheated on his wife left their marriage he had a daughter that had poor mental health as she got older she was often hospitalized for depression and mania and hallucinations and he was just kind of like oh you know like i don't talk about my sick daughter you know yeah, and, yeah. and He had a predilection for young women. And so we know that he was 24 years older than O'Keefe when they met and started their affair. So O'Keefe, who would spend a lot of her time painting in New Mexico, wasn't around a whole lot. She later said that Stieglitz was a hypochondriac, so he couldn't be more than 50 miles from a doctor. So he was not about to go live in New Mexico. So they did spend a lot of time apart. And in 1928, Stieglitz began an affair with a young gallery assistant called Dorothy Norman. 
And during that time, O'Keefe was going through a lot. She lost a project to create a mural for Radio City Music Hall in New York. She was then hospitalized for depression. And it would happen a couple of times in her life. In 1933, she was hospitalized for two months after having suffered a nervous breakdown, largely because she was heartbroken over Stieglitz's continuing affair with Dorothy. And she didn't paint again until January of 1934. So she was pretty hurt about this. And Dorothy Norman was really young, like she was 20. And he and was at this point, like he has 65 to, he, or, you know, so it feels very predatory. To it's me. gross. It's just know. gross. And it was his gallery, you know. Yeah, and exactly. Just, exactly. Of course. How else would he meet a gallery assistant? Uh, right. So anyway, I do like that. Although this is happening, it seems like they had this kind of relationship where they were great correspondents. Like they loved speaking to one another, but they weren't really physically in the same sort of world often they did remain in love and together in a sense up until his death in 1946 of cerebral thrombosis which i think is just an aneurysm right it's like a stroke and o'keefe eventually would make new mexico her permanent home and this is a really interesting time for her work as the work that she makes in new mexico definitely And so that's just a little bit about O'Keefe, the way that she came to be plugged into the art world, how she met Stieglitz. Stieglitz was really instrumental in promoting her work. He very aggressively controlled access to her work, and he would continue to promote her work throughout his lifetime, even during times where this particular type of painting that O'Keefe was doing was not necessarily the hot thing Mm -hmm. in the art world. And so he always believed in her work and took her work very seriously. For sure. Before we break. So I don't like, this is a complicated thing about talking about female artists is they always seem to be attached to stories about men and they're good stories. So you want to tell the story, you know, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to do here in a minute. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm like, but I want to just talk about the woman and her work. But like, it's so hard. Yeah. But it's like, you can't like these stories are rich and good and part of it. But it's just that. Yeah. It's that thing we deal with. I think very often where it seems female artists are more entrenched with their relationships with men, less so than the way we talk about male artists, which is like, equal parts frustrating yeah and interesting it is and i think just to defend ourselves a little bit here a lot of where we're coming from is that we're trying to do these women justice and just the power dynamics and all of that Mm -hmm. is so interesting and so important and that's why it ties in like we're talking you know a hundred years ago for a lot of this story and women just didn't have access to things the same way they do now. They couldn't yeah. necessarily do these kind of things and avoid these situations with men. I mean, or it was rare that they could. So it's just a lot more tied up in the stories. And I think as time goes on, stories will include men less. But it's No, true. I'm, I'm in no way like, I think it's the only way to do it at the moment. I just think that... Yeah, I guess I just want to almost like make that statement known mm-hmm. that in being a historian, there is like it's old kind of trenched in patriarchy and yeah. power dynamics and stuff. And we can't ignore those things because that's not going to do any good either. You know, no. I mean, you so have we to have tell to tell story. these stories. Yeah, yeah exactly. 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 So I'm going to tell another story. <laughs> 
she had a quote unquote, this is how it was framed, scandalous relationship with a younger man later on in life. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) I, I love it, though. Okay. Juan Hamilton was a man 58 years her junior. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) I just sounded really gross. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I know. I like, especially since like, I'm just going to call us out for all of our shit, especially since we were just like, totally like, (laughs) ew, gross, Stieglitz, this young girl. No, I'm going to defend us again. It's a gallery assistant. And I was looking her up. She was married too. Yeah. And she had two very small children and it was Yeah, just the power. I have a feeling that he was more interested in her and it seems a little more predatory on her in that situation than this where it seems like yeah georgia for what? sure which I, I, you're right we should acknowledge a little bit of hypocrisy but like it's got some herald and mod tones <laughs> to it you know yeah, i'm not saying they're the same thing it's a and... dated reference for many of our <laughs> listeners probably look it up but likewise like this gentleman was an employee oh okay all right okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm not even like saying no judgment even. You know what? Like uh, so here's the story. Here's the story. <laughs> I'll tell the story. Okay. This gentleman came to O'Keefe's home in New Mexico to fix the plumbing. Oh. Um <laughs> well, oh, God. now it's fine. <laughs> now that I got now all the information. You sound like a real cheesy, like weird porn I know. Yep, <laughs> plot. Oh no. I wonder if the never mind. Oh, God. (laughs) But basically, he was just very just like fascinated by her. And rightfully so. She's a fascinating woman and just like very intrigued by her. He had just come out of a divorce. They just clicked. He just thought she was fascinating and like really interesting. And then apparently he was kind of put through a a series of tests. She would make him do kind of weird like she'd have him do like odd jobs around the house, but she'd make him do like weird things like straighten out bent nails and like kind of weird stuff. And then they grew. What was this testing? I don't know. What was was the the right way to do this? Maybe to keep around. Yeah, his persistence. Maybe. I don't know. Um, She just had some nails that she needed unbent. And she was like, well, (laughs) it's a test. (laughs) But there was just a series of lots of little kind of activities that she would have him do. And then over time, they just grew close, very close. And the thing is, is like throughout this whole story, it's never explicitly said that they had a sexual relationship. People assume and we can assume, but it was never explicitly stated. However, they had an intimate relationship, 100%. They got very close. And according to Hamilton, so I guess, I mean, you can take what you will from this, but this is an actual quote from Hamilton. Georgia said, all the men artists can have young women, but people think it's shocking that I might have a young man in my life. Ooh. Which is good. I like that. <laughs> I, I like her. I do too. It's badass. You know, she probably didn't even, you know, she probably... They were trying to just hang out. Yeah. Well, I don't, it doesn't matter what they were doing. It's bad, you know, just like. It's really none of my business. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No matter what level of intimacy it was, cool, you know. But basically what happened is they got closer and closer. And then at one point she was invited on this trip to Morocco with some art world friends. And she cool. was asked to bring someone. And she brought one. I'm going to look up this guy. I want to see what he looks <laughs> she like. She brought one and this kind of instigated a lot of speculation and like mm. shit talking from friends. 
And then it haters kind of and then it kind of just blew up over time. It was like people wanted to accuse him of only being interested in her for her money and her status. Did and, she have a lot of money at the time? Oh, okay, yeah, definitely. So she, she was, was incredibly wealthy by the end of her life. Oh, wow. Look at one. <laughs> He's wearing a big ring. So, Look yeah. Them. So there was just a lot of questioning of this, what his motives were, whatever. But at the same time, Georgia was 100% like she could take care of herself. This was not a woman that I think you could take advantage of yeah. at this point. She was just living her life. She was just doing what she wanted to do. So, yeah, they had this very long-term relationship. And another quote from Hamilton, he said, I didn't put her on a pedestal. I was just a handyman who became her ally, which is, I think, an interesting way to put it as like an ally as just this close person. And actually, interestingly, Hamilton got married to a woman that he met at O'Keefe's house. One day he went over to O'Keefe's house and there were two women in the driveway trying to meet. George O'Keefe, mm -hmm. so like fans of hers, mm -hmm. one by the name of Anna Marie and Hamilton like met her in the driveway and he kind of fell for her instantly. And he was very forthcoming with O'Keefe about this. Like he mentioned it to her and O'Keefe said, good, you'll need someone when I'm gone. Aww. Yeah. So, Aww. right. It's just a, nice. it's an interesting relationship. Yeah. You know, it's a very fascinating thing. And I think it is interesting in relation to the fact when we think back to she had this complicated relationship with Stieglitz, who also had a younger person in his life. Mm -hmm. And then she grew older and then she took on this younger, intimate person in her life. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting, you know? It, to me, my understanding, it sounds like it was a very healthy relationship, but also just to kind of put out all sides and to speak to all those people who are kind of hating and criticizing. O'Keefe died at the age of, uh, what was it, 90? I didn't write it down. I think it was 98. Yeah, at the age of 98 in 1986. And she left both of her houses as well as much of her $70 million estate to Hamilton. Wow. Yeah. He, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow, right? Wowie. Wowie. So anyways, if nothing else, she just had some really fascinating relationships i think yeah. so yeah that's hamilton i think we should take another break and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about artistic philosophy and art and all that good stuff all right BRB. we'll see you in a bit enjoy these ads <laughs> do, 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 do. we back we back and we back and we back hope you enjoyed mm -hmm. that message from our sponsors yeah oh boy I just opened I can't a beer. Hear anything? There we go. <laughs> Headphones came loose. Okay. So first half we talked just about O'Keefe's life, mm -hmm. her relationships, those kinds of fun, juicy details. Mm -hmm. And now let's get into the art and just her theories and artistic practice is just legit, just so good. Mm -hmm. So if you're unfamiliar with O'Keefe's work, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but she had a very specific style. A lot of her work, she painted things from her environment and a lot of her work, she did details of flowers. She did New York skyscrapers mm -hmm. and her time in the Southwest. We've got a lot of bleached cow skulls. I love that stuff. So good. Oh my God. It's Ad my favorite. Adobe churches. Mm -hmm. Some good, good stuff. She was very into her natural environment, but what she was doing was both naturalistically very precise and abstract at the same time. Yeah. Which is very interesting. She was largely influenced by Wazali Kandinsky, 
And that in and of itself both makes so much sense and you're right. It's just such an interesting way to think about things because when you think about Kandinsky and his work, he is spirituality meets abstraction, right? Searching for the spiritual through abstraction. And then you add on O'Keefe and you have this role of nature. So I feel like it's searching for spirituality through abstraction and creative abstraction of her natural surroundings. You know what I mean? So it's like this next layer of what Kandinsky was doing. And it was actually referred to in a textbook I have as a distinctly American approach to abstraction, which I think is cool. Yeah, I really get that when I look at Ram's Head with Hollyhock and Little Hills. Yeah, that's a good one. I Mm -hmm. love this painting so much, so much. And it is everything from the clouds. And now that you mentioned Kandinsky, I see it in the clouds and just with her color. Yeah. I love that. That painting's got a surreal bend to it. So much. Yes. Which is super cool. So as far as her approach to art goes, her artistic process, the way she thought about it, got a whole bunch of different quotes we can talk about here. First, I love this. So a quote by Georgia O'Keeffe. The notion that you can make an artist overnight, that there is nothing but genius and a dash of temperament in artistic success is a fallacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Preach, girl. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Right? And she was so persistent throughout her entire career. She was a very persistent artist. She just believed in her craft and she was disciplined. She was very disciplined in her practice. And this goes back to, so I did a a YouTube video, it's on our YouTube channel, where I reviewed some books, and one of them was Daily Rituals, How Artists Work Mm -hmm. by Mason Curry. And one of my favorite portions of that book was when he was talking about O'Keefe, because she had this balance of both organization and being this free spirit. So to everyone around her, Georgia O'Keeffe was a free spirit, very much so. She did what she wanted to do. She was just making stuff. Even though she was incredibly wealthy by the end of her life, she wasn't really out for money. She was doing her thing and getting by in whatever way she could. She was never really focused on monetary success, more so in doing what she wanted to do and being where she wanted to be. And she was very free-spirited, but she also had a very organized approach to her artistic process. She flourished when all of her environment and materials were organized. And then in terms of the way she approached her daily life, I like really vibe with this and I like it a lot. She was organized. She, you know, had a to-do list. She had things that need to get done. But she also kind of flowed with her day. She always woke up early because she liked having long days. She liked Mm -hmm. having long work days. Mm -hmm. She always woke up early, but she often started her day with a walk, like a sunrise walk. And she would enjoy her breakfast. She would just kind of like take things one thing at a time, let her day unfold, but still in this regimented way where she was getting shit done, which is like seemingly paradoxical, but I love it. That's doesn't have to be. It's yeah, exactly. It's a vibe that makes sense to me because so often when people I think talk about their daily routines and stuff, it just goes to one extreme or the other, you know, of Mm -hmm. like either being I am just totally free and do whatever I want or being a very organized person. And to me, the way Georgia handled her creative life was very balanced and just made sense, you know, like putting emphasis on her creative output, putting in the hours, putting in the hard work, but in a way that was still kind of flowing with her environment and flowing with her natural 
rhythm. You Honestly, know? that's like the healthiest way to be. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone says like, right? you know, wake up early, enjoy your breakfast, go for a walk. Like, don't just start off your day all chaotic and then have it be chaos until you fall asleep and start over. I could stand to take a note or two <laughs> um, of O'Keefe's style. So good for her. Yeah. Good for her. It kind of, it's funny. It almost sounds like something you would hear a YouTuber girl yeah, of the 21st century say is like, <laughs> this is my morning routine. Yes. That's actually what I was thinking about because morning routine videos and stuff are such a thing. And I love, I want to see that you should do a Georgia O'Keefe style morning oh routine God. video where you studied her notes and then do a representative morning routine. That is brilliant. Okay, guys. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. It'll it'll probably this might get all cut out, but who knows? <laughs> no, I think that's a brilliant idea. To, it's a good twist on it to take YouTuber culture and like what's popular in YouTuber culture, but try and do it as though we're famous artists. That's kind of where we exist. <laughs> yeah, that's the space we exist in. Oh, that could be really fun. All right, be on the lookout for that. Subscribe to our YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another thing that I really loved about O'Keefe is that she understood that making bad work was inevitable. And she was often excited by her poor work, which is like so important if you're living and working in a creative space. It's so easy to get sucked into the everything you put out has got to be a banger, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works for anyone. No matter how good you are at your craft, that's just not the way it works. Like there's messy stuff or there's stuff that's just not as good, you know, that just doesn't quite. It's the process. Yeah, that just doesn't quite live up to your best stuff. But that's okay. And she viewed those moments as opportunity for inspiration. She viewed her bad work as inspiration and like fuel for her future work which is a very healthy way to approach that like you learn from it but you can also still appreciate it just because it's not the best thing you ever did doesn't mean you can't appreciate what came out in that process you know so once again O'Keefe, just the queen of, I don't know, leading a healthy creative life, I feel like. (laughs) Just like doing it and doing it well. She also talked often about, so a lot of times she was obviously working in the heyday of modernism, right? We're talking all of our modernists, like our Rothkos, our Pollocks, all of our modernist artists that were trying to, I don't know, express some greater truth about life and humanity. And what happened in that time frame was that calling an artwork pretty or beautiful was like a diss. These guys didn't want to hear that their work was pretty. That was not a good thing. And George O'Keefe's work would be referred to as pretty sometimes. And she liked that. She did not consider that to be a negative thing. She liked when people called it pretty and beautiful because, you know, she was inspired by nature and nature is pretty and beautiful. To her, that was not a denigrative term. It was just part of it, you know? Yeah. And I think it speaks also to that school of thought where if something is beautiful, it's not serious. Yeah. Which I think is wrong. And also a Rothko is beautiful. Right. And it's okay to say that something is beautiful. I wonder if calling things beautiful or saying something is beautiful, I wonder if the word is imbued somehow with the feminine. Oh, de- 100%. And I wonder if, 100%. If that is a really, I don't know, patriarchal view that if something is beautiful, it's not serious. It's not definitely 
good. Yeah, because I think there was definitely entrenched in modernist art this masculine bend towards oh yeah higher pursuits or whatever. And yeah, yeah and it tried to separate. When it's all the same, though, like that's the problem when you try to separate the masculine and the feminine or things associated with the masculine and the feminine is that the masculine and the feminine exist in all of us. <laughs> right. And, and you're exist limiting, in everything. You're limiting just your own experience as being a human. Exactly. When you do stuff like when that. When you're like, oh, this can't be beautiful because, yeah, if you're looking at it from a more like masculine point of view, it, you're just creating boundaries that are unnecessary because yeah. it all exists in all of us, you know? Yeah. And it's like just because something is beautiful, that doesn't make it lesser and it doesn't make it strictly feminine either, you know? But yeah, you're totally right. Those words were 100% associated with females feminine and she was working at a time where she's one of the only really well-known female artists like she really was there were not a lot that were really high profile yeah. well-known mm-hmm. and so obviously people are going to attach ideas of being a female the feminine to her work automatically mm-hmm. which brings me to my next point that i'm really excited to hash out with all y'all the <laughs> flowers we gotta talk about the flowers oh yeah flowers. yeah so george o'keefe was known for doing these really beautiful large-scale paintings of flower details like zooming in on the innards of flowers innards. <laughs> oh man <laughs> a really not beautiful way to state that but And really like zooming in on the details of flowers and their amazing paintings. And instantly what happened was the art world and art historians alike were like, this is a vagina. Everyone, everyone everywhere was like, am I looking at a vagina? (laughs) And she really resented that. Yeah, She did not like the sexual interpretation of her work. I have a quote here from the Mental Floss article that I mentioned earlier. In 1943, she insisted that they had it all wrong, saying, Well, I made you take time to look at what I saw, and when you took time to really notice my flowers, you hung all your own associations with my flowers on my flower, and you write about my flower as if I think and see what you think and see of the flower, and I don't. Yeah. yeah, that's so just like laying it out there. I like that she says flower like 25 yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I was like, is she going to say it one more time? Yeah. No. Flower. It, so essentially, the way this has been written about the term to describe what happened here is biological essentialism. Oh. Which, yeah, a fancy term. Very cool. Uh, <laughs> now you know we know what we're talking about. Um, and so it was basically because, once again, that is a fact. Looking at a flower does resemble biological anatomy, like female anatomy. Well, that is that is just real. And so jumping on that as the full meaning is giving weight to biological essentialism. Well, you know, and I'm no botanist, <laughs> but <laughs> aren't aren't flowers sexual organs? Yeah. So, okay. So maybe there's truth to both sides. Exactly. Maybe it's okay for us to look at a painting of a flower and see something that resembles a vagina. Or I've seen some flowers that look vaguely phallic and, you know, that. No, all the time working in the garden. You're like, that's a penis. I look at beautiful vaginas (laughs) all the time. They're everywhere. They're everywhere, folks. They're everywhere. And like, if you take the time to look and take the time to see, if you look at a rose that's blooming, it Mm -hmm. does resemble that. 
you're right. I think noting that fact and understanding that there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. And I, at least in the camp of, I don't think it's one way or the other, but I think that O'Keefe's backlash came from the fact that everyone jumped on the idea that she was trying to say something about a vagina or women or, right. you know, that she was trying to make a feminine statement when she wasn't. She, she wasn't. Right. And so it's not wrong to yeah look at those paintings and see those things, I think. But to claim that that's all she was doing, like that's frustrating, I'm sure, especially for one of the only well-known female artists of the time. Yeah. Right. And to be real honest, before I ever took art history seriously as a field of study, so like, you know, high school, I've always liked going to museums and I've always gone to the SF MoMA and they have a number of O'Keeffe's in their permanent collection. That's all I knew about O'Keeffe. I was like, oh yeah, she paints vaginas. Yeah. The flower vaginas. <laughs> O'Keeffe. <laughs> Done. Done. Yeah. <laughs> You're like taught who George O'Keeffe is as a child and then there's the kid in the class who's like, in their vaginas <laughs> and then that's just the education people ride right. for a very long time which is yeah. really unfair and i can imagine if you in your life she lived long enough to oh, become yeah. a living legend mm -hmm. and so i can imagine it was really frustrating for her as an artist seeing her own work becoming like part of a canon of art history in your lifetime being like uh no that's not what i was doing can you please not say that yeah. you know and yeah. especially because that approach can simplify and did simplify something that's really like vast and interesting like her appreciation for the natural world right and that spiritual aspect right. of the abstraction of what she was creating right. there's all these other layers of her artistic practice right. and her own skill as like a color theorist yeah like, you exactly know, these things that are taken very seriously in the world of art making yeah and to simplify it to being just a representation of female anatomy that it was never intended to be like you're missing out you're missing out on what else it has to offer but I feel like that's just an ongoing conversation in art history. Because still, art historians push back on that all the time. They like push back on O'Keefe saying that her work wasn't sexual. Right. And it's like, like no, she's just saying that. <laughs> it's like, she gets to say whatever she yeah, wants. Who do it's you her think you are. are. She painted it. <laughs> yeah. Like, Imagine painting something and having someone tell you what you meant. Yeah. And then you say, no, that's not what I meant. And they go, yeah, it is. <laughs> like no <laughs> that's one thing that's so annoying about art historians and art critics it's like the approach of saying this is what i get out of a piece of art that's beautiful but trying to tell an artist what they meant it's the not taking responsibility for like your subjective approach to art you right. know like when a critic looks at an artwork and tries to objectively state that it's bad or like bad art it's like no you think it's bad art yeah and that's fine the, share that right but don't claim that it's an objective right. truth well, you know and the pushback comes from if you claim it is subjective that this is your interpretation, then you're opening yourself up to being proven wrong. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And critics don't like to they, be proven wrong. They so. don't. Yeah. I don't know. That's just, just such a shitty thing to do to an artist to claim that your understanding of their work is somehow more... Right. It's pretty fucked up. It is. Well, and the like, thought, like, what I think of it, too, is that it's like a male 
art historian telling <laughs> a female artist, oh, well, this is what you were doing. Yeah. And she's it's like, like, no. She's like, I made it into the art world and now this. Yeah. <laughs> and now I have to deal with this. So is it any shock that she spent the last years of her life pretty much just like I just want to hang out with Juan Hamilton <laughs> get off my lawn yeah for real. you're not Juan get out she was pretty reclusive oh definitely at the end of her life she was reclusive and kind of going back to that story she was very intentional about who she spent her time with I think that kind of goes back to why Juan was kind of put through a series of little right, like like, mm, like tests a little bit like see, like you're gonna unbend these nails yeah. <laughs> she was just very careful careful about who she spent her time with which i think also speaks to that idea of people who thought that maybe she's being taken advantage of i don't think anyone could have taken advantage of her yes. it took a while before she decided she wanted one hamilton in her life you know and that was a decision she made and they seemed to have a nice reciprocal thing for many years you know sounds lovely right i'm looking up her chart Oh, yeah, do that. Because I'm just curious. Oh, she was a Scorpio. Ugh, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking knew it. Scorpio, baby. The whole time I was reading this, I was like, oh, I have a feeling. <laughs> According to this website, Scorpio's sun, Scorpio moon, she couldn't have. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> I think I'm. I think I'm. I'm wrong about a lot of things, but <laughs> I think I, we know she was a Scorpio. <laughs> I'm not going to try to get into her whole chart. Well, according to this here, and who knows that this is true, she was a Scorpio with the Scorpio moon and a Libra rising. Ooh, that's fun. That's Leonardo DiCaprio. No way. Yep. <laughs> He's a Scorpio with a Libra rising. You know what? Hold hold up because <laughs> i'm not very because according to this other website she was a triple scorpio oh that's a lot no it's hard to say it is know, hard because to say i doubt that her mother in 1887 was really trying to get her birth her time yeah she probably doesn't remember her very well but she was born in november 15th 1887 Wow. Um, and the time given on this website is 6.30 in the morning. So so do with that what you will. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh man, Georgia. So I wanted to wrap things up with like one of my favorite, favorite, favorite quotes of all time. All right. And I just love it. It's just so good. I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Wow. And that is something that's, oh, it speaks to my soul. It's like, perfect. It's so real. I don't know. I'm scared all the time. <laughs> like, but you just have to like do the shit, you know? You, right. can either, you can't stop because you're scared. Exactly. You can either be scared and just sit there and be scared or you can be scared and do shit anyways, you know? I love that because she was so amazing and self-possessed and just did her thing. I love the vulnerability of admitting to being terrified all the time mm -hmm. and still also being a badass, you know? Yeah. I think that's just so cool. She really did live her life in such a harmonious way. Right? Of recognizing good with bad and just the yin and yang of everything. Yeah. She seems to have a really strong or have... R.I.P. had a really strong appreciation for balance. Definitely. And it's hard sometimes for people to accept the negative sides of balance mm -hmm. and to literally live with them in a harmonious way. 100%. 
Yeah, she was awesome and amazing and really into beauty, but she also was a badass bitch and didn't take any shit and was like very, she seemed very comfortable with her shadow side, Mm -hmm. you know, which is so dope. Oh, God, Georgia. So good. We love Georgia O'Keefe. She's an art history babe. 100%. Anything else? Anything else we want to discuss before we maybe read a listener mail? Mm, No. Lastly, I just want to say that according to all of my Google searches, she was a triple Scorpio. That's so much Scorpio. That's wild. She was a queen of transformation, my friends. Wow. It's a lot. (laughs) All right. Listener mail. I have one right here. Perfect. Read it. So the subject line is new listener. Good morning, ladies. My name is Andy and I'm in sales in Northeast Arkansas, super rural with lots of windshield time. I recently discovered you guys and really enjoy your podcast. I had a 2.5 hour drive this morning and listened to Fuck Gauguin. Laughed the whole way. Thank you for giving this former AP art history teacher a way to scratch an old itch while I'm burning up the roads in the artistic armpit of America. <laughs> Andy nice. Runyon. Oh, that's, that's sweet. Nice. Wow. That's a really nice message. That is nice. I'm so... XAP art history teacher? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. All right. Well, I'll... you're in sales now. I hope that's going better. <laughs> I can imagine that teaching AP art history in high school is probably rough. I love getting those emails from people that, you know, have had art or art history in their life in some capacity. But, you know, life happens and you totally. don't... You just need to find ways. I love being that little thing yes. for people. No, I really mm-hmm. like that. I that think that's awesome. Good. Um, so that's what great. this is all about, right? Thank you so much for listening, and good luck on your commutes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it for our Halloween weekend recording. We did it, you guys. We did it. Fabulous. Thank you all for listening to this episode on the magnificent Georgia O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. If you have any thoughts or questions, we'll have a Patreon discussion thread go up so you can go on there and be a part of the discussion. If you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash art history babes. It's low as $1 a month. You get bonus episodes and you also get discussion threads and cool stuff. So check that out. Find us on YouTube. Find us on every social media. We post a lot of memes on Instagram. It's fun. It's a fun thing. So fun. So fun. And email us. We love the emails. We love you guys. Did I miss anything? Just love. Just general love. Sending it to you. We love you. We really do. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Good morning, ladies. My name is Andy, and I'm in sales in New England, Arkansas. Is that right? <laughs> is that- any, any Arkansas? Any Arkansas. I don't know. Any. And Northeast Arkansas? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, starting over. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, that's not, no. (laughs) Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.